It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. Hey, what's going on? Welcome to the show. Glad you are here. Thanks so much. I appreciate you uh, inviting me into your smartphone, into your home, into your car, as it were. Thanks for letting me be a part of your day. If you are not a subscriber to the show, please become one. It is free. It's super easy. You just go to thepetecalendarshow.com. Uh, and you click on the subscribe button. And if you want to become a patron, get exclusive content, uh, then you head on over to the same place, thepetecalendarshow.com, and become a patron. There's a link at the top there. Uh, and folks have taken advantage of it, much like Robbie and Janet, uh, Sarah and Frank, Karen, Manuel, Jeff and Nicole, Chris, Matthew, EZ, Daniel, and Janet. Thank you very much, everyone, for your support. I could not do the show uh, without you. So the pandemic has really highlighted how inadequate uh, our North Carolina press corps is. <laughs> it really has. And this hurts my heart to a large degree because um, I, I used to be among them and I recognize the importance and the value of having a strong press corps. I'm not saying everybody needs to be awesome. I know that's a high bar. No one's, I mean, everybody can't be great, right? This isn't Lake Wobegon. So I understand there are going to be some good reporters and there are going to be some not so good reporters, but um, I am just, and I don't know why, but <clears throat> I, I am perpetually and consistently disappointed <laughs> in the caliber of the questions that get asked. And I, I have, like, I understand I criticize them regularly and severely, but I do that because they have a really important job, especially in a time like this. And their behavior has, to a great extent so far, been pretty destructive in this state. Okay, yesterday's COVID briefing from Governor Cooper is just the latest example. And after watching a year of this, I'm not sure why I expected better, but I do. And I did. And it it leaves me disappointed. Now, if you don't want to be disappointed in your mattress, then go to Mattress Man. Mattressmanstores.com is the website. He has four locations in Asheville, Arden, and Hendersonville. And uh, they've got sleep consultants there that go through uh, six weeks of intensive, extensive training. Uh, so they learn all there is to know about beds, how they're made, how they support you, how different material and different mattress construction helps support different sleep styles. So they're going to help you find the right mattress for you, okay? Uh, and they have five-star local delivery service. They ship nationwide, uh, and they have a 120-day comfort guarantee. They have a triple-zero financing deal going on where uh, you don't have to put any money down. You get zero interest for two years and no payments for the first three months. Also, the President's Day sale has been extended, so you can still score a free box spring with the purchase of the Biltmore mattresses, uh, part of the Biltmore collection made by Restonic out of Fayetteville. These are the mattresses that are at the hotel and the inn on the grounds of the Biltmore State. Uh, you can also get a free adjustable base with the purchase of select mattresses. Uh, so you get zero gravity settings, wireless remotes, you get head and feet adjustments. Uh, so head on into Mattress Man or go to the website, check out the inventory, mattressmanstores.com, and experience the difference at Mattress Man. Buy local and sleep better. So Governor Roy Cooper started off his press briefing, uh, as he always does, which is with a rundown of the case counts, 
uh, of COVID case counts, which I have dissected that and why that is not a really good indication of really anything. But um, he's run down the case counts. He did. A, and then he runs down the uh, gives an update on the percent positive. So how many tests are we doing and how many of them trip positive, which is basically a worthless stat. But they they use this as a metric. They want it to be under five percent, which, you know, obviously you this is like garbage in, garbage out kind of uh, assessment. Because if you do a lot of testing in a population that is not at risk of exposure, you're going to have a lower percent positive. And if you go into a hot zone, <laughs> you're going to have a way more higher percent positive. So. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of variables that can influence this this data point. They want they want it to be under five percent, and uh, then it'll get a, a green check mark, as Mandy Cohen likes to do the like a, a red X or a yellow line or a green check mark. And these are visuals to help us know that we are going in the right direction, or frowny face, we're not going in the right direction. Okay, so Governor Cooper starts off the briefing. He does the case counts. He does the percent positive. He does the number of hospitalizations, which is a good figure. And and the death toll, as he always does. Our prayers continue to go out to those who've lost loved ones to this cruel virus. But we are encouraged to see our COVID-19 numbers declining and remaining stable. For the first time since late November, the number of people hospitalized in North Carolina due to the virus has dropped under 2,000. Hmm. We're also tracking a decline in case numbers and seeing the state's percent of positive cases go lower, hmm. though both are higher than we want to see. But day by day, North Carolina is making progress, and this is good news. And we'll be examining that and other improving data as we work on the next executive order. But we still must keep our guard up, as well as our masks, especially as more schools return to in-person instruction after our encouragement to do so 16 days ago. All right, so that's good news, right? We've got a decline in the overall numbers. They're trending downward, and uh, that's what he started off the press conference by announcing. And just thought I would point out here that not a single reporter thought to ask him why. <laughs> why? Why are the numbers dropping? Which I think is a pretty important question to ask, don't you? Don't you think it's pretty important? I think it is. It's I mean, if we're going to accept all of these infringements on our liberties, if we're going to uh, allow the government to tell us, you know, what kind of articles of clothing we have to wear, uh, they're going to put businesses completely out of business and bankrupt people. And they're going to shut down schools so kids can't learn and then deprive them of uh, the, the tools for their development. That's basically going to screw them over for the rest of their lives, maybe send a bunch of them to prison when they get into their teens. Um, I don't know. I, I think it might be important to find out why did these numbers go down? Because when the numbers went up, you used it as a justification to do all of these things that have been so terrible. So when the numbers go down, is it because we're masking more? Wait, are we wearing two masks now? Is that what's going on? Is everybody wearing two masks? I got to admit, I haven't been wearing the second mask. Okay, so I have not been contributing to these improving numbers. I've basically just been doing everything that I was doing before, like literally no change. <laughs> so I don't know what I've done. I like to think I contributed, though, to the decline in numbers. Why are these numbers dropping? If we're going to accept all of these infringements, I think we should know. Seems pretty important to understand 
why the numbers are dropping so then we could remove the restrictions, right? I mean, he's, he mentions there that there's another executive order coming at the end of the month. And next week, he's going to tell us what that executive order is going to have in it. But of course, all the, you know, there are media people that are like, well, t- tell us now. Can you tell us now? I mean, what are you thinking about? What might it have? What might it not have? And oh my God, shut up. Let that happen next week. Okay. You do not need to do a story today about what might or might not happen in another week on an executive order that wouldn't even take effect until the next month, okay? So just how about you start focusing on the freaking things that are happening now, right now, things that happened in the last two weeks, the numbers went down. Not a single reporter asked, why did the numbers go down? What happened? To what do we owe this this drop? I mean, also, by the way, isn't this life-saving information? I mean, after all, if we're doing something to make the case numbers drop, Shouldn't we do more of it? Shouldn't we be encouraging people by saying, hey, look at this. We've got a bunch of um, uh, numbers that declined and people were obviously doing A, B, and C. Or should I say the three W's, right? People are doing the three W's. So we should keep doing these three W's because obviously it's working. Of course, it raises some uncomfortable questions about, well, why wasn't it working when the numbers were skyrocketing? (laughs) When they were going up for the last two months. But see, nobody asks the question. They just see, oh, the numbers are declining. And everybody just kind of walks right past it, oblivious to what that means. Because you know what that means, right? Everybody should understand what that actually means. It means that the virus is seasonal. Viruses are going to virus. It's what we've been saying from the beginning. And I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm no scientist. But I read enough of them to know that, yeah, this is the natural cycle of viruses. They go up, seasonality, bad time of year viruses spread, you know, more easily, and then they drop off. But at the same time that the numbers were going up, the government used that as an excuse to keep cracking down more and more and more and more. Well, does that mean that the crackdowns didn't have an impact? Or I guess maybe the argument would be if somebody ever figures out to ask him, I guess he could say something like, well, it would have been worse had we not done this stuff. Not a single reporter asks it. That's a pretty critical question. Again, I don't know why I keep getting disappointed in them. I, I See, if I have a low opinion of them, I wouldn't be disappointed. So it actually, my disappointment actually proves how much I esteem reporters, these journalists. It really does. And I'm not being facetious here. I'm not, I'm not, this isn't a backhanded compliment. I really want them to be good because we rely on them. I can't get in to ask these questions. I'm not allowed into those press conferences. You guys are. You have to be better. You got to ask better questions. You have to approach this from a bit more of a skeptical position. Also note at the very end of the clip there, Cooper says, uh, you know, that uh, he urged all of the schools to open, you know, 16 days ago. He's like trying to claim credit (laughs) because he urged the schools to do what they were already empowered to do. So this is what we're watching now is the uh, the establishment and the calcification of a narrative. See, he, he's the reason schools reopened 16 days ago is his leadership that said, hey, you know what, school districts, you really should try to get back to open up again. And then as soon as he said that, they were like, well, uh, uh, OK, well, let's go do that then. But meanwhile, we're supposed to trust all of the local districts and the local leaders 
which is why Cooper says, you know, he's not cool with the state telling these school districts what to do on this stuff because he's all about local control. You're going to hear some of this argument. He's all about local control. And so he doesn't want to tell the local districts, but he's going to urge them to open. And look at that. As soon as he urged them to do that, they did. So might that mean that they don't know what the hell they're doing? Right. I'm not sure how you have this both ways. I'm not. Sure, well, I do know how you have it both ways. You have it both ways because Democrat. Right. He's a Democrat. So he gets to have this both ways. He gets to say that he wants to trust the teachers, give them all the local control. But at the same time, he doesn't trust them to actually operationalize any of the plans on their own if the state tells them to offer an in-person option. Right. If the state legislature says, hey, you need to offer in-person instruction, uh, then Cooper's like, oh, you can't do that. I mean, they need local control. They need to be able to decide for themselves. And the state says, well, we're telling them to decide for themselves, but they have to offer it. Well, I don't think they think they can do that. (laughs) So you don't know. You don't trust them enough to construct the protocols and to follow the safety guidelines that you yourself laid out. You don't trust them enough on that, but you require them to have the local control on whether to open at all. Also, uh, he mentions that the bad weather is having an impact on the vaccine delivery. And this actually, this got the reporters blood a pumping. I'll tell you what that's about in a second. First, if going into a military surplus store gets your blood a pumping, or if you got a bunch of blood a pumping and uh, it's leaving the body and you need an emergency kit, uh, one answer for both of those situations, old grouch's military surplus. It's true. He has emergency kits. And if you are a hiker, a hunter, a camper, a fisherman, or woman, fisher person, fish person. Anyway, if you like to go fishing, uh, you need to have uh, an emergency kit for emergencies, right? It, it, you have to have this as part of your kit and your go bag and your prep supply, by the way. I do. I got it at Old Grouch's Military Surplus. You can, too. Go to the stories on Main Street in downtown Clyde. The shop is open Monday through Saturday and across the street from the anti-aircraft gun and at oldgrouch.com. Oh, by the way, not for nothing, I saw he got some dinner plates in. And if you are curious what that might mean, You may want to go check out his Facebook page or his website. You may want to just uh, give him a call, send him an email, oldgrouch.com, and uh, tell him you heard it here on the show. Uh, So uh, Governor Cooper says all of the icy bad weather that we had this week um, that, uh, that might have an impact on the delivery and the distribution of some of the vaccines. And of course... This is now like five alarm fire for the media. Due to the severe weather across the country, the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, notified states across the country, including ours, that some vaccine shipments are delayed. (gasps) This news is frustrating to all of us. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Providers are working to get appointments scheduled, and Mm -hmm. we're pushing to get more vaccine for our state. Okay. All right. Oh, my God. 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 It's a twofer. This is a twofer, people. Connecting the weather panic porn and the not enough vaccine panic porn into one glorious panic porn inducing story. Oh my God, oh my God, I can't believe it. This is A block. This is A block material, people, in in the newscast, in the five o'clock show, six o'clock show, maybe even the eleven o'clock show. This could be A block. This could be the lead story in every news show. Uh, not newscast anymore, their shows, um, in every show throughout the day. I mean, 
This is huge. It's important to remember that vaccine doses arrive in the state at a certain schedule. So second doses arrive in North Carolina, usually on Thursdays and Fridays. And first doses arrive on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. So a lot of the second dose appointments that are planned for this week had already arrived in the state at the end of last week, which enables providers to move forward in providing those second doses, which is great news. We want folks to be getting their second doses. And right now, of those that are eligible for their second doses, 98% of folks have completed the series. We have over 600,000 North Carolinians that have completed the full two-dose series. So that's really great news for us. No, no, come on, man. Say it ain't so. That's Cody Kinsley, the Deputy Secretary of the North Carolina Health and Human Services. No, don't tell me that, Cody. Don't tell me. Look, we got... We got vaccines. Distribution is disrupted by the weather. These life-saving vaccines disrupted by the weather. Come on, man. This is a twofer. Don't do this to me, Cody. Um, The weather's impact on COVID-19 shipments. How is that impacting people who have second doses scheduled? Um, It sounds as if there might not be a great impact on those. Um, based on something that Cody said earlier, but I want to clarify that. And the other question I have is, will the shipment delays impact or could they possibly impact your decision to move on with teachers and school staff in Group 3 next oh my week? God. Um, it, it sounds like that, that may not have an impact based on what the governor just said, but I, I just want to clarify that. <laughs> based on- Obviously, <laughs> I and governors and a lot of other states are very frustrated about the weather delays for the vaccines that are coming into our state. Uh, I don't think the delays will be so much that it would affect anything in our stages. No. But I'll let uh, Cody address the rest (laughs) of the question. Come on, man. Thank you. We're watching this very carefully and working with our providers. Our Uh, guidance right now to providers is to get folks in as soon as they can uh, once they have noticed that the shipments are coming. And and I think we'll see right now we have a two-day, two-and-a-half-day delay, and uh, we'll see if that stretches out to make sure it informs uh, what choices we have to make about guidance for providers. But that's still uh, an evolving space. Um, Second doses, you're right. For most providers, second doses have arrived at the end of last week. So for second dose appointments that were scheduled this week, many of them will be able to go forward. Now, of course, uh, some events because of weather that's happening in our state may have to be canceled and rescheduled (gasps) for other reasons as well. And and that's why our top priority is people being safe, but then getting folks in for their second dose or their first dose just as soon as possible. So you're saying there's a chance. Run with it, people. Run with it. WFAE did. North Carolina faces COVID-19 vaccine delays amid poor weather. Hickory Daily Record headline, quote, local COVID-19 vaccine shipments delayed by winter storms. WCNC and MSN.com, quote, Catawba County vaccine clinics open despite icy weather. Thank goodness, people. I thought for a second, I mean, we wouldn't be able to fill that news hole, but we did. Now we did. Now, um, here's the thing. I'm having some fun with these folks. Okay, yes, but I would not even care so much about this particular story or this angle on the story. I wouldn't even really care um, if it wasn't coming at the expense of the actual newsworthy stories that should have actually come out of these rare opportunities to get the governor to speak about the rationale behind his decisions. 
The first one, as I just mentioned, this critical question that nobody asked about why are the numbers dropping? And by the way, this is interesting. Um, there was a News and Observer story a couple of days ago. Uh, yeah, about four days ago. Falling COVID hospitalizations reflect improvement in coronavirus outbreak in North Carolina. And um, not covered in this article is the why. North Carolina continues to recover from the post-holiday surge in coronavirus cases, and nowhere is that more apparent than in the state's hospitals. The number of people being treated in the hospitals dropped to 1,941 on Sunday. Um, Talks about intensive care units, lowest figure in more than two months. The number of people hospitalized uh, peaked in mid-January, but now it's dropping. And also uh, the state reported the death toll had reached 10,500. Um, at the same time, the state reported that a portion of coronavirus tests returning positive. The percent positive is it like 7%, right? So it's just a regurgitation of the things that Governor Cooper's administration wants to tell you, the stats, the four stats. That's all the story is. And there's no why. Falling hospitalizations reflect improvement in coronavirus outbreak. Why? They don't an- they don't answer. They don't even attempt to. So that's the first thing that they uh, that the media bricked in the press conference in this covid briefing yesterday. The second is uh, the actual story, the big story, which is Senate Bill 37. That's the big story. Right. And that story was sacrificed for this story about the weather and um, a story about line cutting. Those were the two big stories that the media representatives that are deemed um, worthy enough to get through the screening process and get to ask the governor a question. Those that are anointed to ask the governor a question uh, by his comms team. These are the stories that they were interested in. They wanted to know about line cutting and, oh, those people getting vaccines when they shouldn't. Like that's that's the main focus. And the media people, they've been acting like freaking hall monitors on this stuff from the get go on from whether it was about masks. Like, when are you going to crack down on people that are violating the mask mandate? You really need to get tough like they're they're egging on this authoritarian posture. And now it's the vaccines. Well, I think people are skipping ahead in line. People are skipping. People are getting they're getting vaccines like I don't care. Okay, like my focus on all the vaccine distribution has always been get it to the most vulnerable people first. That was my that was my response from the very beginning as well when it was uh, before there was a vaccine. Right. Take care of the most vulnerable populations first, because that's who is most at risk of dying from it. Focus as much attention as possible to containing outbreaks there, because that's where the greatest risk of death is. So uh, and. That was the nursing homes, long-term care centers, uh, congregate uh, living facilities, prisons and such, right? Need to focus the resources on those locations. Uh, Just like now, need to focus resources on getting all of the old people vaccinated. Everybody over the age of 65, right? That's the first tier. I'm not so sure about the healthcare workers, although I understand the rationale for it. So I'm not going to nitpick on that. And that's fine. You want to focus on getting them too? Great. Okay, get the thing into as many arms as possible. And you got these media people, these reporters that are sitting here like, well, you know, we found a couple of people here that got it. I'm not so sure they should have gotten it. Uh, This guy over here, he's from out of state and he got it. I'm not so sure he should get it over North Carolina. I'm not like you're going to hear this kind of um, hall monitoring 
That's what I call it, hole monitoring, this policing, this vaccine policing. This is what they're doing. This is their focus now. We're going to try to get these people that are trying to save themselves at the expense of others. Uh, Well, yeah, except teachers, right? I'm sorry, except teachers, right? They get bumped to the head of the line (laughs) in the subgroup um, designation that Cooper gave them in order to, uh, to take the pressure off of the local school board so they would open schools and do what's right for kids. Uh, So he acts as the savior for the, uh, the NCAE in this case. So we, but media won't focus on that. They don't even ask the question. I'm not even sure. I'm trying to think back. I'm not even sure any reporter has even mentioned the name of the teachers union in any of these briefings, the NCAE. I don't think they've even mentioned it. It's like Voldemort, right? The name that shall not be spoken. Here's a name that you should speak far and wide. It is growers hemp. Okay. Growers hemp. These are North Carolina farmers and uh, they control the whole process to create this CBD product from the seed all the way to shelf, okay? There are local farmers in North Carolina that said, let's band together and create high-quality products, and we control it, not some out-of-state company that, you know, these guys were coming in, they were making all sorts of promises to farmers, and then uh, skipping town, and there were a lot of problems in the industry, and that's why their tagline is, it's about the hemp and not the hype, because uh, they really do believe that grow quality crops, and uh, you turn that into high-quality CBD products, and you help people on their wellness journey, and by buying their products, you help save family farms in North Carolina, and they have the ball. B-A-L-M, the balm, okay? And it's the balm, and it's really good. And uh, so you can use this, it's a topical. You can use it on, you know, hips and backs and uh, knuckles, hands, feet, toes, whatever's hurting, okay? Go to growershemp.com and use the promo code LOVE. This is part of their Valentine's Day special. It's running all month. If you use the promo code LOVE, buy one, get one free, okay? So go to growershemp.com. All month long, promo code LOVE for a buy one, get one free of The Balm. As always, here is the disclaimer. Gotta read it. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of these products has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And nothing I have said is meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from your healthcare provider. Please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. Growers Hemp from North Carolina Farmers to your home. Growers Hemp is about the hemp and not the hype. Growershemp.com. So the big story yesterday from this COVID briefing was Senate Bill 37 and specifically whether Governor Cooper was going to veto uh, this Senate bill. Okay, so for a recap, Senate Bill 37 uh, passed the General Assembly with bipartisan support. Okay, it picked up even more Democrats uh, before final passage. And uh, this Senate Bill 37 would let families choose whether they want to return to in-person instruction in public schools by forcing every district to adopt some option for in-person learning. Senate Bill 37 is called In-Person Learning Choice for Families. It allows teachers and staff members who self-identify as high risk from COVID-19 to seek modified accommodations to minimize their exposure risk. And so that would be consistent with the governor's Strong Schools NC toolkit. Those are the guidelines that the governor put out when he announced that, you know, plans A, plan uh, B and C 
plans A, B, and C, uh, which, you know, C is all remote, A is in person, and B is the hybrid. And remember, initially, when he came up with these things and he put it out there into the field <clears throat> and he said, uh, hey, w- hey, stakeholders, what do you think? And most people were like, we'd like to send our kids back. We think kids should be back in school. And the experts are coming out and the research is coming out. And they're like, it's not really a transmittable um, virus at the school level. It's We're not really seeing it being transmitted. Uh, and, you know, kids are very, very low risk for this. Uh, it can be done safely. And so we recommend that you reopen because, of course, the the catastrophic damage being done to these kids now over the last year is going to be lifelong. It's going to reduce their lifespans. It's going to reduce their ability to make money and have a comfortable standard of living. So, like, we recommend that you reopen the schools. And so then the teachers union was like, we don't want to. And Cooper was like, "Okay, I'm not going to mandate it, everybody. Like, I know I mandated the entire economy shut down and I mandated everybody has to wear face masks and I mandate all this other stuff. But I don't think I have the power to do this. And if I well, I do have the power, but I don't want to. I think this should be left up to you. I determine you are worthy to decide for yourself, but only on this matter, only on this one, local districts. Remember, he did not give local districts this kind of option on whether to opt in or opt out of his lockdown orders on and his capacity caps for restaurants and such. He says they can go more, right? He said that they can go more restrictive, but they cannot ignore them. <laughs> they can. So he's for local control, kind of, in certain circumstances, okay? So the bill... Senate Bill 37, uh, it explicitly mandates local school administrative units shall comply with all requirements of the Strong Schools NC Public Health Toolkit, okay, the guidance. The bill goes a step further than the governor's toolkit to allow teachers and staff members who are direct caretakers of a minor with an underlying health condition um, to also seek modified accommodations. It also gives school districts flexibility to adjust student assignments as necessary to facilitate in-person learning, okay? So, and this was the hang-up, by the way, as to why uh, the House version was different than the Senate version. They went to a conference committee and they hammered out the agreement here and then it went back and it got passed. And so now it's on the governor's desk and it's awaiting his signature. Is he going to veto it? Is he going to sign it? That was the that was the big question. Will he because he's got three options actually. He can sign it and it becomes law. He can veto it and then it would go back to the legislature to see if they could override it. And by the way, they do have the votes to override. They have enough the the measure passed by enough votes that if they needed to override it and everybody voted the same way, it they could override the governor's veto. It would require Democrats to participate in that. But they do have the votes, theoretically, to do it if all the Democrats and Republicans vote again to pass the legislation and override the veto. But there is a third option in North Carolina. A lot of people may not be aware of this, but it's not a pocket veto. It's a pocket passage. So the governor basically sits on the bill for 10 days and then it becomes law. And this is a this is something Cooper could do. So he doesn't have to put his name on the bill, right, and anger the NCAE, Teachers Union. So he could just stick it in a drawer someplace for another week and let it become law, and then his fingerprints aren't on it. This is a slow role play, right? Delay it long enough to let the terrified teachers get their vaccine. That's what it sounds like is occurring. 
So naturally, I assumed that this would be the question that reporters wanted to get an answer to at the briefing, considering, you know, how many students and parents and public school workers are in limbo right now over all of this. That was my assumption. And that assumption was incorrect. (laughs) The, (laughs) The press corps spend most of their time scavenging for sound bites in their zeal to fulfill their self-appointed duties as hall monitors, policing the line cutters and the out-of-staters coming into North Carolina to get vaccine uh, vaccinated. I'm going to get back to that. And you got to hear, because I compiled some of the questions, or all, yeah, all of these questions, I compiled them into a montage. I'm going to get back to that, because it's really instructive in how news organizations operate. But first, the main question, will Cooper veto Senate Bill 37? Or will he sign it into law? Or does he plan on pocketing this thing and just slow rolling it and then vetoing it or slow rolling it and then allowing it to take effect? Right. What's he going to do? Here is what he said at the very beginning of the briefing. I'd like to address the disruption that so many of our students and families have felt from remote learning during this pandemic as well as our efforts to get students back in the classroom safely. All right, let's hear it. As of today, 91 of the 115 school districts have returned to in-person learning. Okay. By mid-March, 95% of our school districts plan to provide in-person instruction. An option, not for all, but that's good, but that's mid-March. Do you see, keep in mind the timelines here mid-March, because what's happening before mid-March? Teachers start getting vaccinated, right? He's moving teachers up in the line, and then in mid-March, he's like, look, school districts, they've got plans to reopen come mid-March. And they're doing that, remember, because I urged them to do so. I said, look, it's for the children's school districts. I know you may not care about the school uh, or the kids, but I care about the kids, so school officials you really, really, really need to reopen. And it's the new research. I mean, granted, the research has been around for like a year, but new research now leads me to believe that it's safe for you to open. And so I urge you to reopen. Please do so. And then immediately a bunch of the big school districts were like, yes, we're totally going to do this. Screw you, teachers union. (laughs) Because that's where the pressure was coming from. The teachers union has been pressuring school boards not to offer in-person instruction because they don't want to go back into the classroom for whatever reason. I'm not trying to ascribe motive here. I'm just telling you what they did, okay, and what they are doing. They're telling school boards don't reopen full time for in-person instruction because, oh, my gosh, we're all going to die. Right. And so this this uh, state general assembly says you got to offer in-person instruction. You have to offer it. And that's what Senate Bill 37 is doing. And so Cooper is like, well, look, these districts, like most of them are going to be open, you know, mid-March anyway. Of course, not all of them. It's very easy. It's like, you know, most will be open. Yeah, but not all of them. So if you happen to live in one of these school districts that is not reopened fully, well, I guess you're just screwed, right? Because Cooper ain't going to mandate it. That's not actually an argument. Like almost all of the districts opening is not a reason to not force them to offer an in-person option. And that will serve 96% of the state's students. That's a good thing. And many students are going back because we've encouraged local school systems to do so. No, they're going back because you gave political cover to the school boards to do what they should have done months ago. 
but they refuse to do because of the pressure from the teachers union, because they're scared, because they're spineless and they're, well, I know I'm ascribing motive now. I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't do that. But the pressure being brought by the union convinced a lot of these school boards not to move forward. We saw it unfold in district after district. Okay, I'm not making this up. This It happened in Durham. It happened in Wake. It happened in Charlotte-Mecklenburg. In the big school districts, this is what happened. They started contemplating the idea. They were like, okay, well, here are the plans. Let's craft our plan A, B, and C. This is what we're doing. Okay, what do we think? What do we think? And all of a sudden, boom, comes the union. And it's like, no, go remote only. We're only supporting remote only. And what, 40% of the... Students in the state didn't get any in-person instruction for the better part of a year. So that's what happened. And so now he's like, maybe you guys should reopen. As soon as he says it, now the board's like, well, the governor says we can do this, so we're totally going to do it. Providing cover. I went over all of this in an earlier episode. I highly recommend you go back and... uh, and take a listen. I also highly recommend uh, that you listen to me when I tell you about Rowena Patton. If you're trying to buy or sell a home, then you need to call Rowena Patton and get your house listed and get it sold for more money and it will sell very quickly. And I say this, like at the tag out, I say, you know, give her a call and then start packing. And I'm serious. I have friends who used her and they called her and within day, like literally within like two or three days, they had multiple offers, cash, and they found themselves racing to pack. I actually helped them pack <laughs> some of the boxes up because uh, that's how fast the house sold. Okay. So if that's, if that's what you want to get your house sold quickly for more money and move on to the next chapter of your life, call Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team, 828-333-4483. That's 333-4483. The website, mountainhomehunt.com. And again, give her a call and then start packing. All right, back to Governor Cooper's uh, initial statement about his position on Senate Bill 37. Here we go. We know that in-person learning can be held safely with proper health measures in place. Mm -hmm. And I'm joining education leaders to encourage school districts to take this step. Mm -hmm. However, it is critical that parents and teachers have confidence that their health and safety will remain a priority. Mm -hmm. I've communicated with legislative leaders that I can sign legislation requiring all school districts to return to the classroom if it requires compliance with the Department of Health and Human Services safety guidelines for schools and protects the ability of state and local leaders to respond to emergencies. The bill they just passed fails on both of these fronts. Okay, how? I'll continue to discuss potential new legislation with General Assembly leaders before taking action on the bill that I now have on my desk. Wait, what? Hey, what about it how? It is critical for our students and teachers that we get this right. What? But what, how? How does it fail? Let me hang on a second. He put out a statement also, quote, children should be back in the classroom safely. And I can sign this legislation if it adheres to DHHS health safety guidance for schools and protects the ability of state and local leaders to respond to emergencies. This bill currently falls short on both of these fronts, end quote. How? How does the bill fall short? He doesn't say. So maybe a reporter might ask him about how it falls short. No. (laughs) No. (laughs) No, they don't. Dawn Vaughn from the News and Observer. She stacked three questions into one, uh, which is never a good idea, by the way, because all it usually does is it allows the person, particularly in these tightly managed 
telephone conferences. It's basically, this is like people in radio understand this model very well. They're, they're basically call screening you guys. You realize that, right? You're, they're call screening you and they're only letting the good calls through. And when they let the good calls through, um, then you ask your question, then they put them back on hold. They don't let them stay on the line. So now the governor can ask, answer it however he wants to answer it. And then you get a follow up. And unless you're going to press him, the follow-ups are just another opportunity for the reporters to ask another two or three questions all lumped in together. But when you ask two or three questions all lumped in together, you give him lots of different ways to run away from the questions that he doesn't want to answer. And that's exactly what happened here. On SB 37, um, you said that you won't sign it. And I guess it's about nine days or less. Um, will you let it become law? And what should school systems do in the meantime there are both there for an override. All right. So, so that's two of the three questions. I cut the other one out. Two of the three. So she's asking, are you going to, you know, just let it become law? Which is another way of asking, are you going to veto it? But so she says that, but then she also throws in that second question about what should school districts do to prepare, basically. As I mentioned earlier, I think that the legislation f- fails on two areas. Number one, it allows schools to put students back in the classroom in violation of the Department of Health and Human Services guidelines. Oh, how? Uh, specifically, yeah. it allows them to put middle and high school students back in the classroom without social distancing. That's one problem that I have with the legislation that I told the, the legislature. But wait, but how? Because the plans were drawn up by you guys, right? You guys recommended the plans. You told the school districts plans A, B, and C. You drew up the guidelines. Why would the law telling the districts to follow your guidelines be in violation of your guidelines? (laughs) By the way, you're going to veto this? And secondly, it, it hampers state and local officials from being able to respond to an emergency. Suppose this variant causes significant problems and you have in the legislature in the legislation that students still have to be in person in the classroom and you take away the authority of state and local officials to be able to respond to those emergencies, that's not a good thing. I want our students back in the classroom. That's why I stood here 16 days ago along with the superintendent of public instruction, along Give him with credit. the chair of the state board of education. Give him credit, everybody. Said, we need our children back in the classroom. We need to do it safely. Safely, We need to follow the guidelines, but they need to be back. And a lot of the school systems have responded to that. And as I mentioned earlier, by, by mid-March or so, we'll be close to covering 90% of the students being back in the in-person classes. Mm-hmm. I can sign a leg- piece of legislation uh, with those two requirements that the guidelines be followed and that the local and state emergency authority not be hampered. So I I would hope that they could send another piece of legislation or just let this run its course because I think most of the local school boards are taking action here. And a lot of people talk about the importance of local control. Uh, Local control is important. It is, yeah, it's important. Uh, unless we are trusting them to open safely. And then I don't want to tell them to find a way to open safely because I don't trust them to follow the guidelines that I set up. So here's the thing, okay? This is this is what this comes down to. If Senate Bill 37 
becomes law. And school districts start operating their middle schools and high schools on plan A, then they won't be in compliance with the DHHS guide, uh, guidelines because those guidelines only allow plan B for grades 6 through 12. His rules prohibit <laughs> certain reopening uh plans so any law that complies or yeah, any law that complies with my rules can't reopen grade 6 through 12 does that make any sense to you whatsoever senate bill 37 section 2 and i have it right here section 2 schools must provide the option of in-person instruction under plan a minimal social distancing to all students enrolled in that school with an individualized education program uh, or a 504 plan. So this is special ed. And special ed in the high school and uh, and middle school levels, local boards of ed shall provide the option of remote education for these students to elect to participate in at the discretion of the, school, the student's parent or guardian for the remainder of the school year. Okay? So he opposes this because this part here, plan A, has minimal social distancing, which is what? <laughs> it's three feet. This is all over three feet. He's saying he can't sign it. Now, remember, this is also Weasley words right here. He's not saying he's going to veto, and he's not saying he's going to uh, 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 allow it to become law. He's saying he can't sign it, which is nebulous. Does that mean he's going to sit on it for another now, what, eight days? He's going to sit on it for eight days and then allow it to become law because all he's saying is, I can't sign it. He's not saying he'll veto it. He's just saying, I can't sign it. He's So is the play here, which I suspect it is, he's going to slow roll this thing. Now, he may he may veto it in another week. He might. He might wait this thing out for another week and then veto it. And then it kicks the timeline even further down the road, right? He, it, it forces uh, the legislature after the veto to take it back up, do an override, and then their legislation has a uh, buffer time period from when the legislation passes for when schools you know, have to develop a plan and then put it into action. And so you end up in this same place anyway, which is mid to late March which gives the teachers enough time to get vaccinated so then he can say, I did you guys a, a solid over here, teachers union, right? I got you vaccinated. I literally saved your lives, <laughs> right? That's where he gets to make this argument to his constituency, his base. This is a core constituency of the Democratic Party. Roy Cooper is no different, and he is protecting his core base voters, that teachers union. He needs them. And so he's like, I'm got, I got you covered. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push this off, and I'm going to keep these kids in remote learning for as long as possible. So let's, and, and I moved you guys up ahead of all of those other essential workers, frontline essential workers. You know, Even though they've got way higher risks of contracting it and dying from it, we're going to get you your vaccines first. I'm going to give you enough time to get that done by uh, blocking this thing from becoming law. He has not given an answer as to whether or not he will veto. Now, uh, here's a veto that I would issue. If you're going to go out and buy like an earth mover for a single project, I would veto that idea. Sounds like a terrible idea. Why would you spend that kind of money for one time for one project? Okay, go to General Equipment Rental and just rent the earth mover. 
then move the earth that you need moved, and then bring it back to them. And by the way, if you're like, well, I'm not really sure how to use an earth mover, Pete. Well, don't worry. They'll tell you. They can show you how to use it. They don't want you messing up their equipment. <laughs> no, but they want you to get the job done correctly and not mess up their equipment while you're doing it. Okay, so they also, by the way, have all sorts of other equipment, not just earth movers. They've got much smaller stuff, you know, chainsaws, trimmers, um, blowers and tillers. And by the way, they are also your official licensed Husqvarna and Honda outdoor power equipment sales and service provider. So if you need some new equipment for the upcoming spring season, then this is where you need to go. Support the business that supports the show. Uh, they're great people too. Family owned and operated three generations. They're, um, on Merriman Avenue and Reams Creek road at that intersection there in Weaverville. And when you go there, tell them you heard it here. Please let them know that you heard it here on the show. I appreciate that. General Equipment Rental, the website, generalrents.com, and think outside your toolbox. Now, what was the story that the media thought was the big story? Well, it was about line cutters for the vaccine. Take a listen. Hello, Governor. This is Richard Craver with the Western Salem Journal. I was going to ask a question regarding to uh, COVID-19, and uh, there was evidently a statement put out yesterday from DHHS involving um, I guess, new guidelines for um, allowing people from other states to come into North Carolina and get vaccination appointments and vaccinations. And I was wanting to see if I could get uh, Dave Richard to provide a little bit more detail about that reasoning. So first, uh, the vast majority of vaccines are going to North Carolinians that are in North Carolina right now. Uh, the guidance has the federal guidance has just been uh, changed to allow states to be more restrictive in whether they're going to serve any people who come from out of state. So we have provided that guidance to providers that they can do a little more to focus uh, mostly on North Carolinians. We have uh, Cody Kinsley, who's the Deputy, Deputy Secretary of Department of Health and Human Services with us, and he may want to shed a little more light on that. Cody? Thank you, Governor, um, and thank you for the question. Uh, absolutely right that the federal government has recently changed the policy allowing North Carolina to be a bit more restrictive. But I think what's important to remember is that this is a federal asset and that many of our communities along the border, some folks do live, work, or get their health care in North Carolina, even though they may live on the other side of the Whoa. border. So some folks may still get their vaccine here. But as the governor said, it is a very, very It's low a federal level. asset and people might get their health care across state lines. Hi there. Um, to follow up on that last question, yeah. um, I was wondering, especially with the Charlotte area being right on the border, I was wondering <laughs> if that would um, impact the mass vaccination clinics that are held in Charlotte. Would those um, new guidelines restrict people from South Carolina coming to a mass <laughs> vaccination site at Bank of America Stadium or Charlotte Motor Speedway? The vast numbers of people uh, who came to those uh, mass vaccination sites were North Carolinians. All right, so this is why it's instructive. You've got reporters that they like, oh, they're they're gnawing on the bone here. Like, oh, they got a hold of a story. Of course, the story came from guidance that got issued by the CDC. And then the AP did a story on that. And so now it's just plug and play for these reporters. You've got the AP that did the heavy lifting of writing all the stories first. And now all you need to do is, quote, localize it, throw a couple of sound bites in there from the governor. And away you go. You got a story that's going to make slot. Thank you. Uh, David Ford, WFDD. 
During last week's press conference, uh, Dr. Cohen mentioned that the department had developed a process to investigate any um, egregious violations of their prioritization protocols. Can, can one of you tell us more about how that process works and uh, what are the uh, repercussions, I guess, for providers found violating uh, the guidelines. <laughs> Can you not uh, drop the, the hammer on these providers that are giving vaccines to people out of turn? We want the providers to follow the guidelines and the groups that we have set out, and we do not want uh, egregious, egregious violations of that. Again, uh, just wanted to ask for clarity. Um, on one of the questions someone asked earlier, last week you said you were working on protocols to help prevent people <laughs> who are not teachers or school staff from fraudulently showing up to be vaccinated when group three vaccinations begin next week. Have you come up with any protocols that would prevent that or penalize individuals, not the provider, but the individuals who would try and commit fraud. There so, ought to be a law. Thanks for the question. I think first and foremost, <laughs> we believe North Carolinians want to do the right thing. And we want uh, <laughs> providers and all North Carolinians to come together and make sure that folks get vaccinated when it is their phase. Um, but there are strategies that help us make sure that the right folks in the phase get the vaccine when it is their turn. Uh, and we're seeing some of those already now. Providers are reaching out and offering appointments. <laughs> they're partnering with local churches. Or local community this is hall monitoring is what they're doing. And it is this is the mindset of a lot of people in media. Who's to blame? Who's the bad guy? How do we pin this on somebody? Meanwhile, they miss the, the actual story. And Dina Ballard, who is the state senator who ran that Senate Bill 37, she says parents and children have waited long enough for some level of certainty in their public education. I hope Governor Cooper chooses not to drag this out for another week and a half. It's a two-page bill. It's been in the public for weeks. If a veto is coming, then do it now so the legislature can vote to override it. If the governor intends it to become law, then he should just sign it instead of taking the politically expedient option of dragging it out to the end of the month just so he can tell the far-left NCAE that he didn't attach his signature to it. But we didn't get that kind of clarity because our reporters are not very good, apparently. That's a wrap for the episode. Thanks for listening. Don't break anything while I'm gone.